Hello, and welcome to History Respawned. I'm your host, John Harney. This episode focuses on the strategy game Ultimate General Gettysburg from Game Labs, which has attracted a reputation in gaming circles for, among other things, a responsive approach to controlling real-time strategy units utilising particularly intuitive unit control. Of course, here at History Respawned, we are particularly interested in the game's setting. The entire thing is focused on the Battle of Gettysburg, which you can fight as either a Union or Confederate commander. Our guest today is Michael Woods, Assistant Professor of History at Marshall University. Michael's work focuses on the history of the Civil War era and 19th century US political history. He is the author of two books, the most recent of which, Bleeding Kansas, Slavery, Sectionalism and Civil War on the Missouri-Kansas Border, was published by Routledge Press in 2016. Michael, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for the invitation. Well, we're very pleased to have you here. Michael, I'd like to start with a fairly open-ended question, which is to ask you not so much about the Civil War itself, but to ask you to give us an overview of how we talk about the Civil War now in the early 21st century. I think that's a good question. I think we end up talking past each other a lot um, when we talk about the Civil War. I think we can kind of engage it in two different ways. I think there are people who speak of it as a succession of battles, right, as, a, as, a, as, a, as an episode of U.S. military history. And then I think there are those who tend to speak of it as a, an episode in American political history, um, often with, re, uh, with reference to the uh, history of race and freedom in the United States. Um, and I think th- those two can, can fit together. I think there are ways to connect them. But I think different people, when they, when they speak about the war, they often have one of those two in mind. And so, you know, one would take you in the direction of reenactment, maybe of war gaming as well. Um, the other one would probably take you in a direction of other kinds of commemoration, um, whether that be um, in, in, in scholarship or, or in, the, in the public realm, too. So I, I think sometimes we, we actually are talking about very different things I think that's a great point. You know, speaking as a foreigner, someone who has taken classes in American history but didn't grow up with these kind of various cultural understandings of what the Civil War was, for me, traditionally, the war itself has been focused completely on this concept of race. And, I mean, obviously that's a central component to the historical fact of the Civil War. But would it be fair to say that you're kind of arguing that the Civil War is something complex that can expand beyond that question of race in, in various directions? Well, I, I think the conversation, for better or for worse, tends to. Um, but, but I also think that, you know, it, if, if you think about the way that we, I mean, we, we consume the Civil War, right, all the time in media and in, you know, travel experiences and those kinds of engagements with the war often do sort of shift us onto a, a really almost exclusively military track. I mean, if you visit battlefields, if you go to reenactments, um, if you play games, most Civil War films um, tend to, to focus on combat, although that, that might be changing, I think, in recent years, at a broader range of, of uh, Hollywood's engagement uh, with the war. But I think as we, as we consume the war, that, that, pushes, that often pushes the, the politics out of it. And what you get is a, a series of, of battles which you're, it's, it's never quite clear what's at stake in them other than 
a sort of abstract victory or defeat, and and it, there's sort of become an opportunity to show valor and and not much else. Um, and so I, I think it, it tends to, in some ways, it, the, the war makes less sense when you engage with it uh, in that way. Um, on the other hand, I, I know there there is a tendency among some who who teach the Civil War to sort of drain the military content out, and and that doesn't really make sense to me either. I mean, it's, it's a war, and and a lot of it, you know, it's it's decided on the battlefield, right? Right, and Ultimate General Gettysburg is a game that definitely situates itself on the battlefield, um, and and I think so much of the iconography around the Civil War has that relationship to that to that battlefield as well. If we look at the the rising importance of the Confederate flag, of course, which started as, as a battle standard, Ultimate General deliberately takes this decision of presenting itself as having a lot of detail. It, it screams accuracy, you know, in quotes, at the player, which particularly for me, it tickles a funny bone. I think a lot of historians have. Um, what do you think of that? There's this idea of accuracy in the presentation of the game. I mean, in, in some ways, it calls to mind some of the the writings that uh, veterans of the war engaged in after the war ended, where they're very, particularly, particularly generals and, and other, other uh, officers would really fixate on what might seem like very minute details of, of troop movements, and especially in, in an exercise of trying to assign blame or to claim responsibility uh, for victory. And so that, that sort of that genre of writing about the war became very much embedded in these, in these in these details about timing and about who was where and about who gave what order at, at what time and I mean you can you can read these and and, um, and it became a very popular genre of writing about the war in the late nineteenth century and so much that it you know it captured a popular audience as well as the general kind of writing for each other and so that. On the one hand, that's a great source uh, if it's used carefully for military historians. On the other hand, it does kind of limit the range of what we talk about when we talk about the war. Um, and so they, you know, and I, I think you, I think you see that that here, right? The the accuracy almost becomes a, an obsession, and what you might lose is some some greater authenticity um, that that. that that is missing if, if you sort of strip away everything except for uh, maneuvers and, and commanders. You know, that brings to mind for me an experience that historians will often have in the classroom where, you know, we have this obligation to make clear to students that history isn't just a collection of things that have happened in the past, but, you know, is about arguments and, and trends and particularly the change in dynamics over time and how all these things can influence each other. But when you have topics like this, for example, there is a certain kind of student who is really interested in um, troop movements, for example, or perhaps rifling technology or something else. And that's often coming from a very strong impulse, perhaps an interest in military history specifically or something like that. But I'm fascinated by the extent to which it connects, it expands out into the public in this kind of persona of the quote unquote, you know, the history buff. And there's nothing wrong with being a history buff, by the way. Dear audience, thank you so much for coming and listening in to us talk. But it's fascinating to me what role perhaps that history buff kind of persona plays publicly. And, and also I'm fascinated by the connection between that kind of public face of, 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 of history fandom and how we kind of try and talk about these things in classrooms. And, and they don't need to be distinct or separated. 
Yeah, I mean, I would I would reiterate what what you said about about there's nothing wrong with history buffs, and and, and I think academics should see that enthusiasm really as an opportunity, right? It's it's a foundation to to build upon. You don't have to convince people to be interested in, in the Civil War, and and I think you know that that gives us a leg up um, over a, a, a lot of folks who might have to make a very basic case for why you should care, right? About whatever the subject is. Um, that said, there can be something somewhat escapist, uh, I think, in in that approach. Um, I mean, that you know, the classic example of this to bring it back to Gettysburg would be um, if you want to know and you want to trace the precise movements of units during the Gettysburg campaign, um, you'd have to account for the Confederate units that we know uh, tracked down and captured and enslaved free blacks in southern Pennsylvania and took them with them back to Virginia when the campaign ended. And that, so that's another detail. Uh, and a, a very detail-oriented person would want to know that, but yet I'm not sure that the person that you've described um, is, is going to sort of latch onto that as being important or part of the story that they want to tell. So I think if, if you know, knowing the movements, knowing the maneuvers um, is obviously essential for understanding the outcome of any given battle or campaign. Um, but if that's used to evade other issues, that if that sort of stands in as the whole story, then I, then I think we've got a problem. Um, so, you know, in, in my view, it's not it's not sort of detail versus the big picture. It, it's which details do you want to include, and 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 what kind of interpretive weight should you give to to each one? You know, on that note, this game is set entirely around the Battle of Gettysburg. Now, Game Labs are currently working on a broader campaign, Civil War game which is in early access, will be available later in the year, but, but this game is focused specifically on the Battle of Gettysburg. And obviously, gameplay decisions have gone into that, um, aesthetic decisions have gone into that, but there's no question that that choice is intriguing. This isn't the first game, by any means, to be specifically about Gettysburg. Sid Meier of Civilization fame had a game in 1997 called Gettysburg, which was very good. But by choosing Gettysburg, you are tapping into public discourses about the place of Gettysburg, the battle itself, it is it is iconic. It is in some ways has its own shorthand. What do you think about the game's very clearly delineated focus on this this one specific moment in the history of the Civil War? Yeah, I mean it's certainly it's certainly the one that's embedded in our consciousness. I mean you don't have to explain it um, to, to people. I mean you you could you, you know every 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 Civil War buff has their their favorite um, battle probably, which is sort of an odd concept and just to think about it but um but it's certainly one that reaches beyond the history enthusiast so the name gathers attention and and you know that that goes way back i mean the sort of the the mythology and the the, the iconography of gettysburg was there from the, from the moment that the battle happened um i mean i think the fact that it's in the the eastern theater of the war helps because those battles tend to be better known um, they tend to be uh, reported on by the press at the time instantaneously. Um, it's a battle that a lot of people visited soon afterwards. And so because the fighting moved away from there very, very quickly. So it became um, a tourist destination and, and really a kind of a, a pilgrimage destination very quickly. Um, 
And, you know, if, if, if you want to measure these things, I mean, there's more total casualties there uh, than any other battle uh, of the war if you combine all three of the days together. So it has a kind of grandeur um, that, that is, I mean, you know, the, the reputation isn't undeserved uh, for that. And, and then it also very quickly became tied to bigger narratives of the war that obviously rely on hindsight. But the idea of Gettysburg as a, as a turning point the war is not is not brand new. That that goes back to really the immediate post-war period um, itself. And so, I mean, a good example of this is it was um, among the first to really attract a huge number of monuments from different regiments or different states that all wanted to um, sort of quite literally put their mark on the landscape. And so, there's been an industry of remembering that battle and of trying to to tell its story for um, basically as soon as the battle ended, that, that process began. So yeah, I think I think the decision to make a game, if you were going to pick one uh, one battle, I mean, it would be predictable uh, to choose Gettysburg. Um, in terms of gameplay, it also may have advantages over others. Um, I mean, the other battle that often is held up to rival Gettysburg is, is the Siege of Vicksburg, which ends the day after Gettysburg, so they're almost simultaneous. But that's a very static I mean, siege, right? So it's 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 a Union forces besieging a, an important Confederate city uh, in Mississippi, and and that strikes me as potentially less appealing from a gameplay perspective. Um, the, the troops are bottled up. There's not much maneuvering to do, and so it, it you know it. it it may not. It's from 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 a, a game design standpoint that that might also uh, Gettysburg might lend itself better than some uh, to that. Yeah. Speaking of gameplay, this is I think a very interesting game. Um, notably, it's a game that exists on iPad as well as desktop, and so you have this very interesting mechanic of of how to move your troops around, which some reviewers have described as as liberating, uh, right? But what really strikes me looking at Ultimate General Gettysburg is the way in which they've chosen to present the game. It is very reminiscent to me very strongly of, you know, a tabletop aesthetic. The game looks like a board. It has victory points that you can capture, you know, to tot up your score at the end. Uh, little miniature men lying around after they've been shot. It is very reminiscent of, of a kind of a hobbyist culture. And in the Civil War, particularly, and, and, and public consumption of the Civil War, you have, of course, recreation, uh, Civil War recreations and the like. What do you think of how the game clicks into this kind of broader hobbyist culture around the Civil War? It strikes me as, I mean, it's very much in that, in that kind of armchair general um, rethinking decisions, refighting battles that, that the veterans themselves were quite uh, keenly involved in. Um, and then, you know, there's this whole other wave of um, Civil War games that come out around the time of the centennial um, in the early 1960s. And, um, you know, then some of those are very, very simple, um, almost on the, kind of the risk or um, you know, strategic go kind of, kind of level. But then others were much more complex um, games. And so, I mean, it, it seems to fall at times when we're thinking about the Civil War a lot. I mean, that obviously it's not a coincidence. That those um, those were released at, at that moment, um, but it 
you know, this idea that you are refighting or you get the chance to kind of remake uh, history, I, I think, is um, has been appealing for a long time. And, and I, I do think it comes out of this post-war effort to assign blame or praise um, that then once those guys all died, then it sort of became, okay, now you have the chance to do it all over again. Yeah. Michael, I'd like to ask you a question about iconography around the war, specifically around uh, the Confederate flag. In 2015, Ultimate General Gettysburg was briefly taken down off the App Store, um, the iPad version of the game, is part of kind of a broader wave of Apple choosing to take action against games that featured the Confederate flag. And the game was off the App Store for about a day. The developers reached out to Apple and basically said, listen, it's, it's, it's meant to be an historic representation. We're not making a political statement. And the game was quickly reinstated. But I do find the whole kerfuffle interesting. And I'd love to hear what you think, not at all on Apple's decision, um, but more specifically about how this reflects more recent conversations about that flag and, you know, how we have constructed this this discourse around this flag. Right, right. I mean, I, I, I don't I don't really want to weigh in on on Apple's decision as a company, um, but. But I, I would say, I mean, two things strike me as important. I mean, the, the context there was there was actually a bunch of different companies that stopped selling uh, Confederate flag merchandise at that time. This, of course, is after the, the Dylan Roof um, uh, shootings in, in Charleston. Um, so Walmart uh, was among those that pulled um, Confederate uh, flag uh, merchandise uh, from their inventory. And... So what, what interests me about that is this is something I've been following for, for quite some time. That struck me as a very different kind of debate than what we had seen before. I mean, up until that point, the discussion had been about the flag in official uh, state-sponsored venues. Um, should it be flying on the state uh, capitol grounds in South Carolina? Um, there's similar debates about the use of the Confederate a battle flag as part of the state flags um, in Mississippi and uh, and Georgia, and so that was one that was one debate about about flying it. This one sort of took it from the from the from the sort of from the, the government realm into the the market into the marketplace, right? And you have you have private companies. I mean, I would assume making a business decision about this. It would be interesting to be a fly on the wall, um, to listen to them um, think about this. But, but they're driven by by a bottom line, and and so, um, it it seems to me to have taken a very, uh, relatively old and and relatively heated discussion in a a very new direction, um, and I'm not sure that that really. Um, struck a lot of people. I, I, I think they saw this as sort of more of the same, um, either for good or for ill, depending on what you think about it. But um, th- this may, it, it may change the way that we think about who's making the decision um, on the flag and how that decision is, is being made. Um, because this wasn't a political decision. It wasn't done by referendum. Um, it, was, it was very much a, a, a market-based decision. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, and if I might ask you too, so again, for me, 
I think of being young, I think of Axel Rose with the Confederate flag on the back of his jacket as he's performing live. Um, I come from a place in Ireland called Cork, and Cork's colours are red and white, and so people would sometimes bring Confederate flags to games because those are the same colours. They would also have flags of the Empire of Japan, by the way, um, you know, from the 1930s. And so I suppose that it's that connection, connection between symbols and context is, is really fascinating, right? Presentation symbols... What, what if you forgive me for asking kind of a, almost a layup question what, what's the 19th century context of that flag right so i mean i i would i would begin by by saying that that the what what people think of as the confederate flag is probably more prevalent now and is used more now uh than it than it was during the war um the, the symbol that they use in the game and that people tend to associate with the Confederacy is one that was used primarily as a battle flag um, by, by the Army of Northern Virginia. So this would be the Confederate Army that's engaged at, at Gettysburg, um, among other battles, of course. But it did become eventually enshrined in official Confederate symbolism. So the first um, national flag, Confederacy did not include uh, the the symbol that we think of as the Confederate flag, but it went through a couple of revisions, and the second and the third flags of Confederacy did. And so, for example, when when the when the Battle of Gettysburg is actually fought in July of 1863, the Confederacy is on its second national flag, which has been adopted in May, and that one featured an all white banner with the, um, the Confederate uh, symbol as we know it uh, in the upper left corner. So it, it's kind of an official and kind of an unofficial symbol. I mean, it's in a kind of a gray area there um, as the flags are changing. And so, you know, is it, is it technically correct to distinguish it from Confederate national flags? It is. Um, but I think, I mean, like you said, symbols have meanings in their context. And I think for, for good or for bad, that symbol has, in, in modern thinking, become a symbol of the Confederacy. Um, and I think you can see that in this game. I mean, they use it as a counterpart, uh, sort of on a, a parallel with the U.S. flag, um, right, in, in, in marking the, the units on the, on the battlefield. Um, so it, it clearly is being used to mean, you know, Confederate, um, at least in, in identifying the the units, which would be very much actually what, what a battle flag would be for um, as well. But you know, I, ha I have a colleague who has, has pointed out that um, that flag has been adopted by uh, reenactors and at, at other living history um, kinds of, of events probably a lot more than it would have been actually used uh, during the war. Um, and it, it's it's sort of close connection with one particular Confederate army has really been lost. Um, and so I think even for those who are are using it as a battle flag, it it, it has also become the visible uh, symbol of the Confederacy of any any army or or any unit that that might be um, being depicted. So I, I think its its meanings have changed and they've they've multiplied um, for sure. I mean. You can see it um, being flown um, when they start to tear down the Berlin Wall. Um, someone had called it out there. Um, it, you know, so it, it's sort of multiplied in its, in its uses. There's a company in South Carolina that makes products um, 
that have that symbol, but the colors have been changed um, so that it, it uh, has a kind of a pan-African uh, movement uh, color scheme. And so they're kind of trying to reclaim uh, this symbol uh, for a, a very different um, political meaning than it had. So I think it's it's so well known that it's become very um, plastic in the in the, the meaning set that people have contributed to it. Something that's interesting for me, not to play too much on my status as foreigner, but uh, mentioning the the Cork connections earlier. Cork is also known as the Rebel County, where I come from. And so when I first moved to America and heard this term Rebel flag, that didn't register uh, with me at all. I do find myself confused by and challenged by the extent to which the flag represents regional identity, this concept of the South that for some is divorced from the you know, mechanism and institution of slavery and for others never possibly could be. It's, it's extremely complex as in the way that the flag represents these different identities at once. And I, I think it's really a big part of why it's so difficult to, to talk about, at least from, from my perspective, kind of coming to this country in the last 10 years. Yeah, and I, I think, I mean, it, it certainly is a symbol of regional identity, but it also, it transcends the region, too. Um, so, I mean, I come from the Pacific Northwest, uh, which feels very, very removed from, from the Civil War. There you'll find the flag being used often in, in very rural, rural areas. And so there, it's kind of anti-urban, um, maybe a kind of along the, the outlaw or, or rebel lines. But but it, it it's I think it's more a marker of a of a lifestyle that a person might want to um, sort of portray um, to the world. Um, sometimes in a in a confrontational way. I mean, I think there's an understanding that it will provoke. A response that will provoke controversy, um, and that might be part of the point, right? Is that if, if you're using it, then you welcome that, and and and, and you're not going to, to shy away from it. Um, but it is interesting there that I mean, you know, it's, it's it's being used by people who they're they're not arguing that the you know that the Confederacy should be um, you know sort of reconstituted and and that there should be an actual separation from the United States, but yet it they're drawing on that moment in history to sort of pin their their modern um, identity to it. And so it, it has become, um, I, I think, a very um, powerful and, and, and very, um, very widely uh, resonant symbol for that. Michael, I want to return to this idea of consumption, of, of consuming the Civil War. And, you know, the American Civil War has been the focus of so much writing and that writing straddles the divides between the academic world and 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 public history and public discourse and you also have of course the famous ken burns documentary in more recent years i as you would guess from the series i'm very interested in how a video game taps into this and ultimate general gettysburg is particularly fascinating in my opinion in the sense that its presentation almost implicitly makes an argument that it has no argument itself that you come in and you are this supreme abstract godlike figure uh moving buford and other you know robert e lee and all these generals around on a board you are divorced from these various contexts beyond the reality of the military conflict and that puts ultimate general gettysburg in a different position from a more 
let's say, obviously scripted game, like a Grand Theft Auto type game or something like that, or a game with specific characters and set pieces and dialogue. What do you think of this approach, and and, and what do you think about this particular, I suppose, example of how we are consuming the history of, of the Civil War? Yeah, I mean, they they, they sort of, they're... There, in in ways, the the game markets itself almost as a, as a living history, right? You are in the, the commander's you know chair, or um, you know you're you're kind of there. You are responsible uh, for the outcome. In looking through some of the footage from the game, though, I think it actually does connect with some of the bigger stories that we tell um, in some interesting ways. If you go to where you um, decide whether to play as the Union or the Confederate. Uh, commander, they they pull up um, a kind of description of the unique uh, strengths and weaknesses of both sides, and so we get what what is a very uh, common uh, kind of um, narrative of a kind of well-equipped, well-drilled uh, Union army, but with poor leadership, against a very courageous but outnumbered, but well-led uh, Confederate army, and. I think, uh, you know, military historians would, would probably um, poke some holes in, in those kinds of generalizations. Um, but certainly, you know, they, they've actually built that narrative into the gameplay um, in, in an interesting way. And so it's not meant to be a work of scholarship, but it clearly is drawing, I think, on existing um, assumptions or existing interpretations that, that people have had. Um, and so, you know, that, that, that screen just stood out to me as one where um, it is, I mean, it is meant there to heighten realism, but um, how realistic are those, are those uh, you know, those descriptions that, that would depend on, on what historian you ask or, or which battle you're talking. Right. And, and the selection of facts is, of course, still really important, right? This idea that this is accurate, this is the way it is, isn't the end all and be all either. It's the choice of facts, presentation, and so on. Yeah, and I think I think they always have to have gameplay in mind, right? I mean, there's always a tension between quality of gameplay versus historical realism. I mean, if you wanted to really bring it to life, you'd have much less control over your units once you sent an order. You know, you'd wonder if they received the order. You'd wonder if the commander would understand the order. Um, you'd wonder if they would choose to follow it or not, right? So it, it gives, you know, I think a real Civil War commander would love to have had the degree of of control over his subordinates that, that you get here. So I'm not sure that one would really actually enjoy playing a game that was incredibly realistic, right? And so there's that, there is that balance um, of how do you make a playable game that still has some kind of historical... Um, authenticity to it right and and that's that's a challenge for sure yeah like they they'll you know designers will have a concept like morale the morale of your unit matters and so on but also you don't there's not much fun in the idea of mutiny being like a completely random you know <laughs> right. thing or what have you right <laughs> i i did like how they worked in um morale with the presence of uh of commanders though that they would have an effect on the morale of their soldiers because i mean civil war officers are famous for leading from the front they're they're right there a lot of them saw that as their role as as sort of models of of physical courage and um it's not a coincidence that there's no fewer than nine generals who are killed during the gettysburg campaign so they're up there 
um, at the front, sharing in the in the danger, and um, and you know that's I, I think I think they've actually woven that into the gameplay quite nicely, where the proximity of the commander has uh, a, a very tangible effect. I think we know that that was that was the case. That's great. Well, listen, Michael, thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate it. Oh, no problem. Yeah, thanks for the invitation. And thank you all for listening. This has been the podcast version of the show, an extended uh, conversation between myself and our guest, Michael Woods of Marshall University. Please feel free to look Michael up and perhaps look into reading his work. If you're interested in us and maybe you're coming across the podcast for the first time or maybe you've been listening for a few weeks and you're enjoying what you're hearing, please do consider visiting our website, historyrespond.com, which at the moment focuses really as a repository for um, audio podcasts, but also the video episodes, which is how this whole project began. And there will be some changes to the website as the year goes on as we begin to revamp and change the content of the site. If you want to go straight to the source, you can go to youtube.com slash history respond for a wide variety of videos covering games from various Assassin's Creed entries into the series to Diablo 3, Papers, Please, and other uh, really wide and I'm I'm proud to say I think Bob and latterly I have created a, a pretty diverse range of uh, episodes. So hopefully you'll go and have a look if you haven't before. If you particularly enjoy our work and would like to support us, this is very much a not profit driven enterprise. It's driven entirely by the desire to educate. You can find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash history respond, where you could uh, support us if you like by making a small monthly contribution. Meanwhile, you can also follow us on Twitter at history respawn, and we would certainly love to hear from you. I hope you enjoyed this discussion and look forward to seeing you all for the next episode. All the best. Mm-hmm.